I'm Dada Ishoba King. We are both coming to you from somewhere in Lagos this time. This is a Nigerian Hustle podcast about Nigerians in Nigeria who make a career out of helping other Nigerians. Happy New Year, my friend. How are you? Happy New Year, my brother. It's 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 good to be back. At least um, we survived 2021 and we are coming into 2022 with a different kind of energy. Absolutely. Um, we have even better content for you in 2022 i can't wait but in this episode we spoke with edem dorothy osai she's the founder and executive director of mentoring assistance for youth and entrepreneurs entrepreneurs can't pronounce that word correctly but you get the point uh <laughs> initiative um mine for sure is the name of the organization uh when i first heard of the organization i think this was like five six years ago it was basically a small operation like a mobile library but now they provide multiple services for kids in you know disaffected communities um if you remember when we talked to the doctor or doc in the hood uh imagine her providing life skills for people in those communities instead of um, medical services mm. um, i even recently saw that they you know they teach kids young girls how to make their own black soap and it's all branded and they advertise it and you know people make make good money so they provide life skills um they provide um uh, literacy skills to children of all levels up to the point where they graduate from secondary school and even enter university so they're, they're doing great work too many of us tend to just um, sideline sideline them or don't look at them the way we should. I mean, we just ignore them. But the work they are doing is extremely massive. I mean, it, when you're able to teach one child in the trenches, as we call it now, a life skill that that life that can change that child's life, and in turn also help the child to also change the people around around his or her life. We don't know how much of a work we have done until we get to the other side of the planet and we see the fact that, oh my God, this is the, the, this is the greatness in the job done. Absolutely. I think this basically ties into the adage of teach a man to fish. In this case, you know, teach girls to fish. Um, our organization doesn't only serve girls, by the way. It's with boys and girls, but it seems that girls tend to be the ones who, you know, um need the most from them um that comes through in a lot of um a lot of things she talks about so this episode um like our previous episodes um, three parts and in part one we talk about the childhood observations and experiences that led edem to her advocacy work and to creating this organization um enjoy we'll see you in part two Welcome to the show and thank you for doing this. Thank you for having me. It's All right. good to be here. Um, so I've seen already a couple of your or of a couple of interviews you've had in the past, and one refrain that strikes me is the fact that what you do now was inspired by something you saw when you were 14. Um can you recap that, if you will? Oh, okay. Um, 
So I think the story you're referring to is um, the one of my childhood where I had um, two young neighbors, mm-hmm. um, girls, and I grew up in the University of Ibadan campus in Oyo State. And um, you know how it is. Well, anyway, so typically children of, you know, lecturers, my father was a professor you would be in residence on campus. So there were these campus houses we lived in. And then you had BQs, boys' quarters. And what you would find is that um, the people who occupied the boys' quarters were like, you know, security men in the university or like low, non, low sort of ranking, non-teaching staff. And of course, you know, that had implications in terms of like, you know, their income levels in society. So these two young girls, one was the child of another professor who lived in a similar residence on campus. And the other was a ward of the security man who lived in the boys' quarters. And, you know, in the morning, the one, the one who was the childhood professor would set off to school, staff school, which was the school where all of us children of lecturers went to, while the other girl would follow her auntie. And, you know, they would have trays on their head and she would go and be selling, she would be hawking. So they had that, I don't know what it was, but they, they would hawk. But in the evenings, they would all come back. I know children now, everybody would gather and play together. So I remember at 14, I just was, you know, struck by that picture that, you know, their lives converged in the evenings but separated again in the mornings and i remember asking my mother ah why isn't um i won't call her name why isn't she going to school and my mother was a tv broadcaster at the time so i used to get very we, we all used to watch the news i used to be part of like a lot of tv shows they were doing in you know nta Badon. and i think all of those things maybe got me very like sensitized early to some of these issues around children's rights. So I just noticed that that seemed to contradict some of the conversations I was hearing on the news. And I'd say, oh, why isn't, you know, this particular girl going to school? What can be done about it? It's wrong, blah, blah, blah. So I think, um, you know, that, like I said, that raw story, as mundane as it sounds now, was, I think, my first epiphany. I just, it was the first sign I knew that some things were not balanced in the world. And um, I started an, a program in the evenings where I would just be teaching, you know, this particular girl how to read. So I didn't realize it. I wouldn't have articulated it then. But that was when I first I sort of cut my teeth in, you know, leading initiatives, you know, to solve problems, that kind of thing. So growing up, you know, I, I, I um, studied law in the university. Um, I started out with a legal career. I worked in a commercial law firm in Lagos. Um, But I think, you know, because of all those early childhood experiences, I had done a lot of work with UNICEF subsequent to that, you know, initial experience I shared. Um, I always somehow um, was very attuned to like social injustice issues, especially from the lens of children. You know, what were the things that were wrong in the world where children, you know, were most affected? I would typically in any scenario, I would detect it. I would notice it. And so in, you know, my legal practice, I didn't, even though, I mean, um, I showed promise as a young lawyer and I was doing well in the law firm, but I didn't quite feel like it connected with my core. Um, And so every time I would visit my mother back in Ibadan, I would always still notice those children, those number of children on the streets and the numbers were growing. And um, to cut a long story short, within a short time, I got very restless in legal practice. I felt like it wasn't the roadmap to the kind of future I envisioned for myself. I didn't feel like I was really contributing, you know. So I quit my job at a point. I relocated back to Ibadan. And um, 
I started this community initiative where I was taking, you know, um, learning resources and like mobile, we call them mobile libraries, but they were broader in terms of the services they were delivering. So I used to take those um, mobile libraries into communities and we would deliver, you know, books for children to read. We would deliver computer training, practical computer lessons. We would do soft skills training. So I, I sort of recruited a team of volunteers and we would go into communities on a roster every Saturday and do this. And I felt so fulfilled. I felt like, you know, I'm really doing something sensible in the world. Um, I mean, it doesn't, especially in the Nigerian parlance, that's certainly not, you're not presenting yourself as a professional when all you're doing is, is almost like you're a Sunday school teacher, you know. So um, it didn't quite feel like I was utilizing all the skills I had. At least when I told people what I was doing, they would just look at me like, well, uh, did you not go to school? You know, how did you, you know, end up here? But I think um, as I continued and I started, you know, raising funds because the numbers of the children coming for our programs were growing. So we needed to scale. We needed more tools, more computers, more this, more that. So um, in the process of trying to raise funds, I got into conversations like, oh, what's the organization's account number? So by default, you know, um, I, started, I found myself setting up an organization. So that's to say that even when I launched out, I didn't quite have it all figured out. Um, it was just a case of intuitively wanting to, you know, contribute to do something good with my with my skills, but that led me into organizational like um, management. Led it led me to setting one up. Led me to um, so I discovered oh okay I'm running an NGO after all. So I became an NGO professional, you know, and um, it's what I've been doing for several years now. I started this formally in 2012, and this is 2021. So it's been a deep journey, you know, ever since that particular story. Yeah, so let's go back um, a little bit, reflective. Uh, let's reflect a little bit more on the kind of person you are to have started this when you did at 14. And it intrigues me because growing up, I, I, I would say I grew up in a similar circumstance where I grew up in a household that was educated um relatively well off but in a neighborhood where there were people who were obviously you know suffering i needed help and well maybe not suffering but were obviously lacking opportunities uh but my mindset at the time or my way of looking at things was just eh, that's how life is right um it takes a special kind of directed compassion an intuition directed compassion to decide this thing is a problem not just that but x y and z can be done about it like you started you know a learning program for just that one girl so where would you say that directed compassion came from and that um resourcefulness is it something you think you've always had growing up is it something that was acquired uh with all the programs that you had done up to that point is it something you can't explain or is it something you can identify as oh this is where this came from definitely um what was the growth process of that okay so let me start with the second arm of it which is the resourcefulness because that's easier um i think resourcefulness for me came from not having enough and always wanting more okay. you know so as a child um 
like I said, I grew up, you know, my parents, my father was a, an academic. Um, you can imagine the income of a professor in the early, like the 80s, you know, how na hair. So although we grew up in, you know, university settings were self-contained and you could pretty much live that like basic comfortable life. But, you know, as kids, you want toys, you want those things, you know. And then the interesting thing was um, my father was one of those academics who used to travel a lot. So um, we had the internet, like um, not the internet, we had fax machines. Like we always had a lens on international, like what was happening outside. You know, we had cable TV. So those things that sort of frame your aspirations. You see what your your mates, tiny people like you, humans like you on TV are doing. You understand? You too, you want it, you know. And then I had um, uncles um, and cousins who lived abroad. Okay. So you know how it is now. You're, you, you are the poorest amongst the family cousins. <laughs> you know. So when you visit their <laughs> yeah, houses in Lagos, thank you. When you visit their houses in Lagos, they had it all. Mm-hmm. So all of those things, you want to play a certain game. You don't have what it takes. You go and figure out how to create it with the resources available to you. So me and my sister, we were very like outdoorsy. We used to, you know, because we didn't have a tree house. I remember one of the things I always wanted was a tree house because I saw it on TV. Right. But I didn't. We was going to go and uh, build you a <laughs> tree house. Hey, thank you. So we would do all sorts of things in our backyard. We would create. We created tree houses. You know, the good thing was my dad gave us um, the BQ because. We didn't have um, occupants. Typically in university settings, the BQ students, you know, would come to lease it and, you know, for a fee. But ours was vacant. Uh So we turned our BQ into like a, you know, toy house. So we painted it, you know, we could paint. I remember I was very, um, I got into, um, not sculpturing. uh, When you use clay, molding, molding and, you know. So thank you, molding, you know. So all of those things. So one thing we had was space and we had nature. So there was no money, but try and frame, create it with what's available. And I used to read a lot. So I was all those very early bookworms. So I wanted to create those and it lightens in settings. You uh-huh. know, I wanted to see the fairies. I wanted to, you know, have the, um, you know, good witch from, you know, the West visit me in my career. You know, so all those things. So th- that forced me to use what was available. And I think you don't know it as a child but it's building certain skills you know so in terms of resourcefulness i've always been trained instinctively to look around me to see um what's available and then i think also that early foray into leaving my you know um, profession to set out into the unknown and run an organization because i literally left with my last salary which was forty thousand naira, i'll never forget and the car that the comp the the law firm bought for me so when you now go out, you're for me, you want to solve the, you know, you want to solve the world's problem, you want to, then you just discover that, girl, you have zero money, you are on your own. And you, I needed to make this thing work because everybody, virtually everyone laughed at me. Like, I needed to prove that I could do this thing. So because of that, I learned to operate lean. And resourcefulness starts from even yourself. So I always tell my staff in the organization, there's very little that, I, if I find that I need a skill set and I can't pay for it, I'll, I'll, I'll learn how to do it i may never do it perfectly but i'll do it i remember the first website it was all this silly um what's this template website i've forgotten which of those blogger one of those blog all these you know free domain wordpress i created my organization's first website you know i used to do all those things because i didn't have the money to pay and i needed the results so sometimes you know it's human nature actually i do believe to solve our problems when you're really in a you know tight corner necessity is indeed the mother of invention so that explains i think my resourcefulness to the aspect of um this compassion 
I really don't know. And these are questions I ask. Sometimes I wonder, is it the environment that I grew up in? Because I, I think nurturing the, the, the you know, socialization process played a role. I grew up with a father who was, I like to call him a crusader. You know, his own crusade was to correct the injustice of colonialism against the African man. Mm. You know, but all of those things, all of those things basically identify some level of some kind of injustice in the world. And you're trained by the conversations happening around you constantly. You don't realize it, but the, every day my house was, you know, open to visitors coming in, having that same repeated conversation. My mother's own um, job as a media practitioner also naturally exposed, you know, the kinds of conversations that were also happening was, okay, um, who are the government officials, you know, um, misappropriating funds. So everything that was circling in my world were these tailored conversations. I also remember vividly when my father became the deputy vice chancellor in the University of Ibadan. And you know, we started having all these trappings. Everybody, any small thing, they came, they wanted to come and turn the house into, you know, mini um, what do you call it? Protest uh, Abuja. No, not even when the protest, not when the students even come. I'm talking about, you know, all those trappings of office now. By the time they world, when they yes. thank you, when they elevate you, next thing everybody begins to walk as if you are God. So they started coming, they started sending all kinds of staff outside of this. We started having all kinds of drivers. Ah, me now, and I was in Queen's College at the time in Lagos. So I was very happy. My time to pose has finally arrived. You know, my cousins will no longer laugh. You know, just and I remember one day going off to school, my father, and he had these very vicious eyes because when he stares at you like this, he's like, and he looked at me and said, if you like, go to school and let the first word out of your mouth be bragging that, you know, your father is now a this. So Ooh. that basically denied me the right to even go and boast about this, my father's accomplishment. So all of that, and I never forget that piercing stare where he warned me. It was almost like, ah, this man is so wicked. If you see the look, I, I still, my dad died a long time ago, but I never forget that stare, you know, reminding me that you don't have the right to go and brag that you've climbed up on any social ladder and therefore you're better than anybody. So I don't know whether it's those things. I don't know which one preceded which one, whether the conversation or whether as a child in, intuitively, you know, these things were there. I don't know what it was. But um, all I know is that I don't like a world where some people are up and some people are down. I'm very uncomfortable with it. I notice it when I go into anywhere. I notice, you know, power imbalances. I sense them. I see where, you know, power attracts certain privileges and some people, you know, suffer certain disadvantages. I believe that the things can go around. I believe, and I see societies that seem to be more egalitarian in there. Of course, there's injustice everywhere. But I see certain ethos. I see when, you know, equality is the bedrock of how society's systems are designed. And I see that at the end of the day, you think the resources go around and even the few that want to still be called rich, you understand, they have the esteem that they want in society while the rest are comfortable. So I don't like the part, the what we've established in Africa. I don't like it. I, it, you know, I cringe when I see how we, we seem to, you know, embrace those kinds of structures where life is hierarchical, you understand? So at the end of the day, even my exp the expression of my work, which is, um, you know, in education and strongly in girls' education, is just fighting that, those drivers. Because I, education for me is the silver bullet, especially in places like Africa. No matter the challenges, once you're an informed person, you have access to certain, you know, knowledge power. You can find your way around. So if you find a way to democratize that skill, you know, we'll level society a little bit. So I think these are the things that have just, um, I, I can't honestly say where the, you know, intuitive compassion came from. But I just know that I sense it. I go into a place and I see where one child is the pampered one and one child is left in the corner. And I don't like things like that. You know, it's one of the things that I, that I picked from everything you're saying is the fact that, um, 
you, you, I think you already know. That's that's. I was smiling when you said that. Um, uh, when you said that, you, you didn't know. But when you, I, my mind went back to all of the analysis you gave, and mm. clearly, those words were already. Those seats were being dropped. Look at what when you said what you said about your dad, for instance. That um, mm. he's, he's always having conversations about um, the injustice of injustice of colonialism in Africa, injustice mm. of colonialism in Nigeria, and then your mom was always talking about um, about which government person embezzled money. Why mm. didn't they use money for all of these things? I, I personally would think that um, those things shaped you. They shaped your line of thought. So. And the first point of contact, the first level of effect was in seeing that young girl not going to school and seeing the other girls go to school. Mm. And then it, it put a picture in your mind of what your parents used to discuss. And that was the first outlet for it. That's one of the things that I would love to think about. Yeah, I, I definitely agree. Um, I, I do believe that, you know, um, the, the kind of way we are socialized or the way I was socialized has played a very strong role in who I, I am evolving into. I've not finished my evolving process, <laughs> but who, who I even currently am. And I find that even though like my siblings, when I look at my siblings, even though they are not in a similar line of work, you know, we, we have very similar philosophies of life. You know, I noticed that um, our views on these things are, are shared. Um, we we are very modest you know we're not the kind of people who go into a setting and want to be the loud ones you know want to everybody to gravitate towards us so i see that those philosophies sort of you know cut across so i definitely the the parents we we were raised by um are critical in in that you know um i think that journey nice so let's get into the meat and potatoes of what you do now right do you still run the mobile library yeah, so the mobile library is still a very strong component of our work. Because how does it work exactly? So right now, um, the program, it's now a program. Okay. It's a literacy program. And uh, essentially, it involves taking literacy, you know, skills and services to communities. Now, what we do is we still, we have a, a youth center now. And the goal is to expand that youth center to as many more communities. So that youth center also has an outreach. So the outreach is the mobile service, the mobile library service which visits more communities. But we believe in having stationary centers as well because young people, when you've introduced them into that habit of reading, you know, you've, you've lured them in, you've, you've trained them because reading doesn't fall from heaven. When people argue that, Oh, Africans don't read. I'm like, at the end of the day, we're still, you know, we have, we all have a shared blame in it. Um, So, but when children have experienced reading and learned to enjoy it, it's not a hard task. They then want to have a place they can repeatedly go to where like a walk-in place where you know the environment is attractive Sorry is to inspiring for a second uh, i think for the purposes of listeners let's um define and sort of um let's define what the mobile library is when you started it yeah so Let's discuss that first, and then we can go into um, your consolidation of that concept through learning centers now. So the mobile library, was it books on wheels? How exactly did it work? How did you envision it? How you know? How did you... So ours was um, books on wheels, um, a hybrid really. And it, I mean, it's good to ask that because there are different kinds of mobile libraries all right. over the world. Now, ours was, um, we would convey the books in a vehicle, but assemble it in a physical space. Okay. So we didn't have a huge 
huge bus or a huge, you know, um, van where the children would come in and sit inside and read, as you find sometimes when you describe, you know, libraries on wheels. Gotcha. It's not that variant. Ours was we convey it in a boot because remember I started with that vehicle. I said my love and bought. What for kind me. of vehicle was it? Ah, my 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 green lantern. <laughs> <laughs> my my G wagon. <laughs> it was a Nissan Almera green. Okay. It was my G wagon. Oh, awesome. So 